0: Hello, I'm Andre Tomlin from The Mental Health, and I'm here today with Professor Sir Robin Murray, who will be giving one of the keynote talks at the MHNR 2018 conference in Manchester in September. Uh, Sir Robin is Professor of Psychiatric Research at King's College London. He's a psychiatrist and researcher who has dedicated his career to caring for people with severe mental illness. He's conducted some of the most influential research into what causes conditions such as schizophrenia, and perhaps most notably, the relationship between cannabis use and psychosis. In 2011, Professor Murray was knighted for his services to medicine. Welcome to the podcast, Sir Robin. Thank, Thank you. you. So, what, what are you planning to talk about at the MHNR conference
1: in Manchester? When you read textbooks about schizophrenia or you hear uh, some authorities talking, they say schizophrenia is an enigma. We don't know anything about the causes and the mechanisms. And I think that's now totally wrong, that it's not a total mystery. There are still things about schizophrenia that we don't understand. When I started in psychiatry, there was a big dispute between those who thought schizophrenia was a genetic brain disease. And on the other hand, those who thought it was totally social. And these two groups argued furiously the social uh, people called the geneticists fascists, and the geneticists thought that the social people weren't scientists at all. But that's all gone now. So now we have a much more integrated view that takes into account both uh, social and biological factors.
0: I wanted to start by asking you about the, the Schizophrenia Commission that you chaired back in 2011. Um, which reviewed the care of people with psychosis in England and made a series of recommendations for improving care. That, that commission reported that people with psychosis were neglected, often poorly treated, subject to discrimination. Do you think the situation has improved in the six years since that was published?
1: We were very surprised by the extent to which our recommendations were accepted both uh, within the mental health professions, but in the Department of Health and also through the media. So we were very optimistic. But unfortunately, we timed the Schizophrenia Commission with the beginning of austerity. So although notionally, everybody agrees with uh, 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 with, with our recommendations, if anything, things have got worse because the funding, the lack of funding has meant that really keeping up with the standard of care that was available in 2012 has been impossible. So I think the, the, the care of people with psychosis has got worse in the UK. got better in some, in some other countries, but here in the UK, sadly, it's deteriorated.
0: And I guess that's reinforced by the evidence that shows the mortality gap for people with severe mental illness, 15 to 20 years, is actually widening um, some of the studies that we've, we've blogged about over the last year or two, there's one that we're just about to write about. The physical health needs of people with schizophrenia and other severe mental illness, we're just not meeting those, are we?
1: Well, actually, one what of we- the, the few areas where there has been some progress has been in psychiatrists uh, assessing physical health in people with psychosis. So back in 2012, it was mostly neglected. Now, the National Schizophrenia Audit, which occurs every two or three years, has actually surveyed this and shown that psychiatrists now do the blood pressure much more frequently. They do monitoring for diabetes. They do weight and BMI. So they're more aware of the problem. It's just very difficult to do much about it. And the sad thing is that once people have put on a lot of weight, it's very difficult to lose that. Well, we, we all know that from ourselves. But if it's difficult for the general population who are not on antipsychotics, it's, more, it's very, very difficult uh, for people who are already uh, on antipsychotics to, to, to lose weight. So the, the important thing, I think, is to prevent the increase in weight. And now we have antipsychotics, which are more weight neutral, uh, so we're less likely, if, if somebody goes on uh, one of these, they're less likely to put on a lot of weight than uh, uh, than people on some of the other uh, antipsychotics.
0: And what about smoking? Do you think that we give the same level of, of care and support for people with severe mental illness to help them stop smoking as we do for, for everyone else?
1: No, of course uh, we don't. Well, we don't give the, the same amount of uh, care generally. And... Uh, it's often psychiatrists and uh, other mental health professionals often have a great deal of difficulty in getting GPs or uh, physicians uh, to pay attention to people with with the uh, mental illness, and similarly, to get people with with uh, psychological problems into a smoking clinic can often be quite uh, difficult. So, some of the studies suggest that about, that maybe up as much as two thirds of the excess mortality in people with uh, with psychosis is down to the much higher rates of smoking. So if we could uh, manage to persuade our patients to, uh, to cut down the extent of their cigarette smoking to the same as the rest of the population, a lot of this gap would go. I, sh- I should say, actually, you, you mentioned that the gap had got worse that between the people with psychosis and the general population now that is true but that's not because people with psychosis are dying more it's because the general population are getting healthier so the general population have greatly decreased their cigarette smoking for example and are are taking a bit more exercise people with psychosis are not so that's that's really why the gap has got worse
0: So we've spoken about a little bit about smoking tobacco. That Obviously, a lot of your work is also looking at smoking cannabis. One of the notable um, public disagreements that you had re- regarding this was with David Nutt back in 2009 when you had a conversation in the Guardian newspaper about the links between cannabis and psychosis. And, and your research has shown that prolonged heavy abuse of cannabis contributes, can contribute to the onset of psychosis. Um, why does that remain such a contentious finding, do you think?
1: Well, I don't think it remains a contentious finding in researchers or amongst uh, doctors who are who are uh, dealing with people with psychosis every day. I mean, back in in 2005, uh, it was a relatively novel idea. People like David Nutt were a bit slow to to understand this. Uh, but, for example, even David will now accept that uh, heavy use of cannabis uh, increases the risk of psychosis, though he would dispute uh, how how important it is. In South London, we calculate that about 25% of all the people we see with psychosis would not have developed it if they hadn't been smoking a, a high potency cannabis. I mean, that's not to say that they didn't have other troubles, but you know, they might have been abused as a child. They might uh, have had adverse life events, but they would be, might, they would have been able to get on okay. But they were tipped into psychosis by by cannabis use. So I I don't think it's that contentious amongst people who follow uh, the research. The thing about cannabis is it's complicated. That say. Uh, with alcohol, the vast majority of the population get on fine with alcohol. Even some heavy drinkers get on fine with alcohol. But there's a small proportion will end up uh, developing all sorts of physical complications, becoming dependent, eventing, eventually ending up with a liver failure or dementia. And uh, we we know that that's there's a, a balance between the beneficial effects and the adverse effects in the minority, and that's the same with cannabis, except it's more complicated because alcohol is the same substance, whether you drink it in a lager or you drink it in a prosecco or you you drink it in whiskey. It's just the concentration varies. But, But cannabis, there's different constituents, some of which are good for the brain and THC, which is the one which causes the euphoria, but also increases the risk of psychosis. So that's quite a complicated thing to get across to the general public.
0: And it's an issue we're going to explore in this mental health question time event that we've got happening later on in September after the mental health nursing research conference. Um, so thanks a lot for joining the panel for that. I look forward to hearing more on that from you then. So you're co-editor in chief of Psychological Medicine Journal as well. So And you've spoken a bit about antipsychotics. Clearly, psychiatric drugs are a a key component of the care we provide for people with psychosis and schizophrenia. How do you think psychological interventions fit into this picture now?
1: There's no doubt that antipsychotic drugs are vital during the acute psychosis. And for many people, they may have to take them for a considerable period. But I do think we tend to stick people on antipsychotics sometimes depot preparations, and they stay there for life. There is a tendency now for patients to be discharged from psychiatric care back to their GP, and GPs are scared to, to decrease antipsychotics. So I sometimes see people, you know, who I've seen 20 years ago and prescribe them antipsychotic with a note to the GP saying, hopefully you'll be able to decrease this. 20 years later, they're still taking the 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 original dose and have huge problems with obesity and diabetes. So, I think we do have to be more cautious about antipsychotics.
0: So, I guess there's a key issue there, which is about withdrawal. And this isn't just antipsychotics, is it? It's antidepressants and other psychiatric medication. The situation is the same in that people are prescribed these drugs, as you say, in the acute phase, but then they never come off them for various reasons. Um, So, what do you think needs to change the current system? Is that simply a primary care training issue, that GPs need to become more confident in helping people withdraw?
1: Psychiatrists have to accept this and of course, psychiatrists are overworked and they like to have a quiet life. They don't like to risk anything and a quiet, a, a quiet psychotic person doesn't cause the patient any, the, the doctor any trouble, but of course the quality of their life may be terrible. Uh, so I think we have to, first of all, persuade psychiatrists that they should always give patients a chance to decrease the, the 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 extent of their medication and see how they get on. For actual withdrawal, you have to do it very very slowly. If you stud if you suddenly stop an antipsychotic, it's very likely that well people will 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 relapse as a consequence of that. But if you very slowly decrease them perhaps over a year, perhaps over two years, maybe over three or four years, then there's much less, they've got a much better chance of getting off them and staying well.
0: Mental health professionals are very risk averse, aren't they? There's quite a significant literature on that. Um, So it feels like that's a cultural change that's needed rather than
1: simply guidance talking about it. If you have 20 patients waiting in your outpatient clinic uh, and uh, you have only a few minutes to see somebody who, who has, you know, the diagnosis of psychosis three or four years ago and has been well on antipsychotics, in order to, uh, you know, just keep them going, it's easy enough just to see how you're doing, no voices, are you got a part-time job? And, you know, the, the consultation can be over in 10 minutes. But if you're going to discuss the possibility of decreasing medication, it's going to take longer and therefore the queue at your door is going to get longer. So I think it's not just the risk averseness, it's the pressure on on psychiatrists.
0: Let's talk about talking treatments. So we've seen quite a big change over the last few years in in the recommendations, uh, the guidance from NICE. On CBT for psychosis, for example, and obviously there's all sorts of other psychosocial interventions that are being um, provided for people that are being researched in detail. What 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 would you say um, the evidence shows us currently for psychological interventions for people with psychosis and schizophrenia?
1: Well, personally, I'm a believer in the value of psych- of CBT, particular particularly for uh, 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 people, people with psychosis. In my experience, it has often been very beneficial to people that I've been looking after. But surprisingly, if you look at the literature, it's much more controversial. And uh, it's, one of, it's one of these daft situations where I think there are about 52 or 53 papers on CBT and psychosis. And there are, I think, 21 meta-analyses all analysing these uh, same papers and coming to different conclusions. So most of them say there is some benefit, but there are one or two. And actually in the mental health that you've recently had a controversy with people like uh, Samir Johar and Paul Morrison, uh, uh, pointing out that the evidence is not as clear cut as some psychologists would like. So my own view is that it depends on what the treatment as usual is. If you're a patient with psychosis and you have an understanding psychiatrist who has time to talk to you, who is psychologically minded and will talk to you about what are the the, 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 the factors that make your, your voices worse and what uh, are other possible explanations for uh, some of the beliefs that you have. If you have an underst- a psychologically understanding psychiatrist, and then if you're referred to CBT, it may not make a great deal of difference. But if you're in a situation where you have a duff psychiatrist who just uh, sees you for for two minutes and says, you're still hearing the voices, oh, you better have more medication. Uh, then in that situation, then CBT is often very valuable because at least the psychologists are good at listening and they they have more time. So I think the the benefits of psychological treatment, I think, depend on the quality of the treatment as usual, and they also depend on the quality of the therapist. Of course, if you prescribe a drug, it's the same in Glasgow and Inverness and London. If you prescribe or you advise psychological therapy, then the the outcome depends very much on the quality or or on the skill of the therapist. And often... In some of these trials, the uh, supposed supposed CBT psychosis expert is relatively junior and not very experienced. So my view is that with highly experienced and skilled uh, CBT psychologists, then it is valuable in very many cases. And I refer Nearly all my patients to to uh, some of our wonderful uh, psychologists at the Maudsley. The, the value depends partly how rubbish the 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 the, the 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 general treatment is. One thing, of course, is that psychologists have taught psychiatrists to be much better listeners. When I was trained, I was told that people with psychosis were not understandable. They had mad ideas. They they had hallucinations. They had mad beliefs and there was no point really in trying to understand why they had uh, mad beliefs but uh, now we know that you can trace the origin you can often trace the origins of people's uh, beliefs and understand them and attempt to uh, very slowly and subtly modify them
0: and of course Eleanor Longden is going to be talking at the MHNR conference as well I'm sure she's going to have some interesting uh lived experience and and research to share
1: with us. She's a very good example of somebody who can continue to function at a high level while still hearing voices. The the orthodox psychiatric view has been that you're you're not well and you're not able to function until we get rid of uh, psychotic symptoms. And that's one of the reasons why people continue on antipsychotics. But Eleanor and uh, other people have demonstrated that you can function very well uh, while still hearing voices, that if you can cope with voices and uh, uh, contain the voices uh, and uh, regard them as part of yourself, then it is is compatible with with a normal, uh, healthy life.